Hello everyone and welcome to a special episode of Heroic Purgatory, an Asian cinema podcast. My name is John and with me as always my co-host Jason. Jason, how are you today? I'm fine, John. How are you? I'm fine too. So today we'll be taking a break from our season 4 coverage uh, to talk about the 2023 edition of the New York Asian Film Festival. And I believe this is the third time uh, that we've done this and as we usually do in our festival coverages. We'll talk about our favorite films of the festivals, our top five, so to speak. Uh, and additionally, uh, just like uh, there was for the Osaka Film Festival, there will be written reviews on this website. And of course, there will be written reviews on Jason's blog as usual. There will be links uh, of all that in the, in the uh, respective page for this episode. Uh, however, before we do any of that, uh, we'll jump straight away to uh, discussing the festival. So Jason, as always, why don't you give us a short summary of the New York Asian Film Festival? So uh, the New York Asian Film Festival 2023 runs from July 14th to the 30th at Film at Lincoln Center. And there will be a special weekend of screenings on July 21st to the 23rd at the Barrymore Film Center in Fort Lee, New Jersey. So this might be a first for this podcast, but it will be still running uh, while this episode, when this episode is released, yes, so we'll endeavor to uh, avoid spoilers as much as possible. And uh, there are seventy-eight films that have been programmed for the festival, and they come from territories including mainland China, Hong Kong, Thailand, Taiwan, South Korea, Japan, the Philippines, Singapore, Vietnam, North America, and even the UK, as it covers the Asian diaspora. So tickets went on sale on June twenty-third. And I'll give a brief overview of the pricing. Opening night tickets for Killing Romance are $25 for the general public and $20 for Film at Lincoln Center members, students, seniors, and persons with disabilities. Those who wish to attend the open night screening and the night market can get tickets for $50 for the general public and $40 for Film at Lincoln Center members, students, seniors, and persons with disabilities. Tickets for other films are run at $17 for the general public $14 for students and seniors and persons with disabilities and $12 for Film at Lincoln Center members. And you can get an all-access pass for $249 for the general public and $199 for students. The general access pass, or the all-access pass, does not cover the opening night and premium events. So the premium events include screenings of Killing Romance, Egoist, Home Sweet Home, Vital Signs, Phantom, and the closing night film. Premium events are priced at $25 for the general public and $20 for film at Lincoln Center members, students, seniors, and persons with disabilities. By the way, do you know what it takes to be a film at Lincoln Center member? Uh, I haven't looked into that. Okay, okay. I'm just, just curious. And I'm, assu I'm assuming there's something that it doesn't make sense to be a member of unless you live in New York. Yeah, probably. So it's not like the uh, Japan society where you occasionally get uh, other benefits. Although I, I think they're not as many as it was during COVID. There's uh, probably all sorts of benefits because there are various film seasons at Film at Lincoln Center. I suppose so, yeah. So, yeah. Um, in terms of uh, guests and awards, uh, whether you're a member of Film at Lincoln Center or not, uh, you have the chance of meeting a variety of people from... South Korea, Japan, and um, further afield. And these are some of the highlights. Um, Ryohei Suzuki will be in town to receive the Screen International Rising Star Award. And he is joined by Daishi Matsunaga as the two introduce their film Egoist. 
we've got Lee Harney, um, who's the lead actress in Killing Romance, and she also appears in Phantom, and she's uh, in Taring to receive the best from the East Award. Louis Koo, the Hong Kong superstar, is set to receive Screen International's Extraordinary Star Asia Award, and two of his films will be screened at New York Asian Film Festival. Those are Vital Signs and The White Storm Free, Heaven or Hell. Other guests include Anshul Chauhan and Shogun, uh, who are in town to introduce their film December. We've also got Takeshi Fukunaga, who I believe is a New York-based filmmaker. Um, he's introducing his Japanese film uh, Mountain Woman. We've also got Chihiro Ito, a new director who um, debuted at the Tokyo International Film Festival last year with In Her Room. She's going to be presenting that film in New York. We've got actor-turned-director Takumi Saito with Home Sweet Home. And we've also got uh, veteran director Junji Sakamoto, who is uh, going to receive the Star Asian Lifetime Award. And um, he's in New York to show off his film Okiko and the World. And of course, there's also the the regular competition award, which we don't know who's going to get that, of course. No. Uh, well, there are all sorts of films buying for the award, including Takumi Saito's Home Sweet Home and a film from Kazakhstan, which I am guessing we're going to be talking about at some point today. Uh, maybe, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and uh, yeah, those are like some of the guests' highlights. Have you seen any? Uh, what of those films that you mentioned? Yeah, I've, I a few of those names I was able to to catch before tonight, before today's recording. Okay, so maybe we'll have a chance to speak about those films. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. I think we say this every time we do this uh, festival, but I think it is safe to say that it is the biggest Asian film festival in North America, perhaps the biggest in the world. You know, we're talking about festival festivals that are exclusively dedicated to Asian films. We have over sixty or seventy titles each year. And some of these being the hottest and the latest around, then yeah. So, this is... so that's what I mean. It's not only the in number, because you can always accumulate more films as a festival, but it's also about the quality and the names that it usually attracts. Yeah, and you can get like outdoor screenings, you get special screenings. Like this year, we've got Bong Joon Ho's The Host getting a special screening. And like um, uh, Nomad, uh, like a classic, uh, I believe it's Patrick Tam uh, movie from Hong Kong. So it's a, a wide variety of films on offer. So this is. If you're in New York or on the east coast of America and you're able to travel to the festival, it's a really great opportunity to see Asian movies. Absolutely. All right. Uh, so now we can jump into the main event, so to speak, and talk about our top five. I don't know about you, Jason, but I had a hard time making my top five. So I watched, there's at least 10 or so films that, you know, in any other day could have been in my, it could have been in my top five in different ways. And I, I have to say this year, I struggled to pick a top five, but I didn't so much struggle, or I should say there were many films that immediately made me feel like they'd belong in my top five, but there weren't any immediate ones that I would put as number one. So that's what should I say about my list, is that the order is perhaps a little bit ambiguous, is that it, today that's kind of the order that I'm feeling, but any of those numbers that I give, in, if I made the list a different day, they could, it could change. That's kind of how I felt about about this year's. At least, you know, I'm only, of course I'm always just talking about the films that I was able to watch out of the seventy some films. I, obviously, I watched a very limited number because of time constraints. Yeah, I, I think we've like had two weeks to do this, so we've only been able to cover so many films. Yes, yes, but yeah. So I, I think, I think just a, I think I made it at sixteen or seventeen, something around that number, and 
uh, you know, there were a lot of good, great films, but like I said, I was a bit disappointed that none of them immediately stood out to say, okay, this is a clear number one for me. Uh, that's not necessarily a bad thing because there were a lot of great films, but but it it made it made the job, especially of top three, it made it a lot harder. Yeah, this year's selection is just fantastic because there was like out of the um, like sixteen or seventeen titles that I watch, and admittedly I've seen like three of these at the Osaka Asian Film Festival earlier this year, but out of the seventeen titles I watched, like at least three of these are going to be in my top ten of the year. As is usual with the New York Asian Film Festival, the quality is right up there. And um, like I'm surprised that they're able to get like scoops on Japan cuts because like these are films that I fell in love with. I feel like audiences around the world will be able to fall in love with. And again, they're going to be in my top 10. Probably in the top five. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's good. And I think, you know, uh, I think the, this Fest, this edition of the festival had the most titles that I recognized in the sense that I had seen them, but not, not necessarily seen the movies, but had seen the, the titles and had been aware of them before, before I even saw them in the festival roster. Yeah, we've got like award winners, like uh, A Light Never Goes Out and The Sunny Side of the Street, which picked up Golden Globe Awards. Uh, not Golden Globe, <laughs> Golden Horse Awards. Golden Horse so and yeah, a few appeared at the Osaka Asian Film Festival. So, like, if you want a really great uh, look at what contemporary Asian cinema is doing, including award-winning films, this New York Asian Film Festival has got your back. Okay. So, without further ado, what's your number five, Jason? So, uh, my top five—it's going to be a clean sweep for Japan, just to spoil things a little bit. Um, but as you said, like, quality is so good. It was difficult to pick a top uh, top five. Um, so I will begin with Mountain Woman by Takeshi Fukunaga. So it's a story that draws upon real history and folklore as it, take us, it takes us back to 18th century Japan during a time of a great famine. And the main character, Rin, uh, she's from an outcast family. And we watch as the villagers um, turn on her and her family uh, as the suffering caused by the famine grows in intensity in the village that they live in. So immediately, uh, I felt like a comparison um, could be made with the Ballad of Nariyama, because you've got, it, it feels like you've taken back in time, great costuming, great sets and locations, um, and also like dialogues rich with um, talk about how the seasons are unfolding and um, like the politics within a small community and a reverence for nature. And uh, while it doesn't have the same painful emotional climax as the Bard of Nariyama, it actually uh, gives you just as much to think about. And uh, yeah, if I had to describe the film as an experience, it's a bit dour, but it can teach you something about human nature. Yeah. So, um, so this was number four for me. Okay, okay. Uh, and I wrote down, just to, sorry, you can continue your thought, but uh, I wrote down, uh, it could have easily been number one, except the ending did not quite rub me the right way. Uh, and we're not going to say exactly what the ending is, so as not to spoil it for people, but uh, I, I felt like there was a, a, a sudden turn, a sudden positive turn at the end that it felt unearned, but again, 
if I watch it again tomorrow, I might change my mind. That's how volatile this list is for me. Yeah, I think um, what I cottoned onto is the fact there's a sort of inevitability because you've got two um, plot lines running through this. One is Rin's um, ability to sort of uh, self-actualize her personality. She's able, she goes into the wilderness outside of the village and um, like we get a reverence for nature. We understand that she's close to like uh, the folk tales and she absolutely believes in them. And then, you know, there's, and then there's the stuff that's going on in the village, which doesn't quite die down. I don't, I don't want to say anything more. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I guess we can, uh, we can uh, say a few things, but there's uh, the element of sacrifice right uh yeah, of, like, of especially virgin sacrifice which to me doesn't that sort of folkloric element doesn't strike me as very japanese it can be european or it can be you know native american but i don't know if you if you're more familiar with japanese culture and folklore than i am but it, i don't know many instances of in japanese folklore where the virgin sacrifice is, is a motif well, uh, I know Takeshi sacrifice Fu is, but that sort of virgin sacrifice element seems to me that it is very European. Yeah, it's um, Takeshi Fukunaga um, spoke about this at the Tokyo International Film Festival last year, and um, he drew upon folk tales and history. Um, I um, uh, I cannot remember the exact book. I think Tono T O N O something like that. But apparently, uh, you know, these things did happen, like uh, a river burst its banks and was raging for days on end and the villagers decided to throw a, vir uh, a virgin into the river itself to try and um, calm the gods. So he's done his research and he's used it to create um, this story where he shows how prejudice uh, can be used to um, sort of bully marginalized people into doing horrific acts to ostracize them from society. And uh, yeah, we see due to the stigma attached to Rin's family, uh, like various characters use it to bully her and threaten her. And um, it's really upsetting the duplicity and cruelty that the villagers show her. And uh, yeah, I think it's like a negative trait of human nature that still applies today because, like, you know, we see people are quite comfortable hiding in a crowd uh, or behind rules to sacrifice others or to make fun of others and punish others. And I think what the movie does so well, so from a technical perspective, is it really makes the audience buy into the inevitability. You sort of, for a second, you believe that, because Reen believes it too, that, that some of the choices that the villagers make, not, necess you know, not necessarily towards the end, but, but even early on, the film, I mean, this is not much smaller, but there's, you know, the villagers kill all the babies because they can't afford to feed them, and you sort of buy into that. Uh, you don't approve of it, but it, it makes you understand what where what is their um their predicament. It is the very first scene of babies exactly yeah killed, setting the brutality of the time, but the necessary brutality, some might say, and yeah, it's just constant um prejudice against Rin and like this constant talk of the famine, and we get scenes where people are squabbling over rice rations, and it like the village begins to feel like a suffocating place, which, um, because of all of these crises, people are turning against each other. And like you said, it seems like this, like the ending is inevitable in some ways. Yeah. Except it, it, again, without trying to spoil it, it feels like that's what I didn't quite understand is it feels like at the very end, it decides to break that inevitability. But, 
But oh, another thing that I wrote to my daughter, do you know what movie this reminded me of? Uh, and something that I mentioned either last episode or an episode before that was Aguirre, The Wrath of God. Okay, uh, yes. Okay, how come? Uh, it, that sort of like, uh, you know, that struggle against an unknown force of nature. Uh, people like, especially the forest scenes visually, it reminded me of that, but even plot-wise, the, the, the mat, the, there's a common theme that, that runs through both those movies about, about men's struggle against, you know, like something that they have absolutely no control over, because even in Aguirre, we don't really see the aggressors, it's just arrows coming from deep inside the jungles, and it's almost like the gods themselves are punishing them. So, so this one got the same, and also just the pace, there's like a slow pace to the movie that is slow in the sense of just camera movement and, and shots and movements of the actor, but not slow in terms of how the plot moves. Yeah, it's, uh, I think it's a really good comparison, actually, because it's kind of like the whole village is people battling for control and um, trying to get out of, trying to get out of being responsible for something or having to sacrifice something. And then Rin goes out into the wilderness and she gives up control and she lets herself become one with nature. And like, she's able to uh, find her identity and find freedom. Uh, I always find it funny in these kind of movies where, you know, like this is a, you know, struggling for rice is a common thing in Japanese beard movies. And I always find it ridiculous how little the amount of rice that the poor people are given. Like there's no way anybody can realistically live with that. It's not even a handful of rice, right? I think like at the time we've entered this village, this famine's been going on for a number of years already. So it's kind of like they've been taken from the rice stocks already. And it's like they've, breach like that like this is the final straw yeah and yeah this crisis yeah but i mean the other thing that again this is just more of a for a little bit of levity but they are in the middle of a forest you know can they just hunt for food or can they just well we get that scene with the hunters where they're like there's no game available yeah yeah which is hard to believe but i guess it, it is sort of like a uh uh, like fitting with a quasi supernatural uh, elements, which is again, I think the movie does a great job. It never really. This is sort of maybe like the witch, if you remember that movie, where it could be supernatural, but it could just be all everybody hallucinating. And this is the same. It could be supernatural, or it could be just the flood. You know, it happens, right? Yeah. This, uh, yeah, this like um, famine was um, started uh, with the eruption of a volcano. And like ash covered the sky, so the temperatures dropped, and like crops were ruined for years on end. Uh, you said it's based on a book. Do you know if this was like a real historical, uh, you know, like fa- famine or drought, no flooding, whatever it was, or do you think it's just uh, loosely based on multiple events in, uh, in the past? I think this is loosely based on multiple events. Um, I'm trying to look at the book now. The Legends of Tono. T-O-N-O. So I think that was put together by a folklorist in the early uh, uh, 20th century. And it draws upon sort of folk tales and history of the Tohoku region. Uh, oh, one more thing uh, I, uh, before we move on to the next movie. And I think you mentioned, I don't, I think you mentioned this, but he is a, a filmmaker that was based in New York until not too long ago, right? I, yeah, he's, I think he's still based in New York, but his film, I Knew Mosia, is on Netflix. And um, I think he's released um, films through um, the lady who did Selma. I can't not remember her name. She has a uh, film label. Ava like... DuVernay or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, he's like, um, this is an international co-production. You've got, I think it's a Chinese or Hong Kong uh, composer. And, yeah, you've got uh, 
maybe a European or American doing cinematography. Uh, all right, all right. Uh, okay, so that was uh, your number five, uh, Mountain Woman, and which was my number four. So to go for my number five, I went with Ego Egoist from Japan also. Yeah, that's high up my list as well. <laughs> okay. So after I give a description, you can say what number it was. Uh, so uh, this is a film about a relationship between a photographer or a magazine editor. I wasn't exactly sure what his role was. It was fairly vague. And his personal trainer, who is uh, uh, whose name is Ryuta, uh, and the name of the magazine editor is Kosuke, I believe. Uh, and Ryuta is Kosuke. a high school... Say that Kosuke. again? Kosuke. Uh, and Yuta is a high school dropout who is often strapped for cash and is kind of sort of forced into prostitution in order to help his uh, uh, sick uh, mother. And gen generally, they they're come from a very poor family. Uh, so Okosuke makes it sort of his life goal to help Ryuta and his mother partly stem from uh, Kosuke's own mother dying at an early age and him missing and trying to sort of use Ryuta's mother as sort of a surrogate for his own feelings. However, before he can achieve any kind of happiness, one tragedy strikes after another, and he's just never able to to get the satisfaction out of life that he uh, has so desired. And the film sort of ends on a, a bittersweet note, I think. Yeah, I have a slightly different reading. Um, like, he's a magazine editor, and like from the moment you're introduced to him, like, he's all about money. Money's used to control every aspect of his life. Um, his fashion sense is really sharp and he says uh, he uses it as armor and um, he's a, a dilettante of uh, food and fashion and um, you see him extolling the virtues of like cakes. He's very eloquent and um, he knows how to have fun but it's all very controlled and money is a key part of that control. And when he meets Ryuta, it's kind of like he falls in love, possibly for the first time, and um, like he's trying to negotiate uh, building a relationship with Ryuta, and he's using money as a sort of blood force object, so it causes some friction. But gradually, he he begins to let go of um, control, and um, he allows Ryuta deeper into his life, and um, becomes part of the family. And uh, it's not so much like you know. Like, Bad stuff happens in the second half, but he gains not just Ryuta's love, but the love of like like you said, the surrogate mother figure that that's able to um quell the negative emotions he's probably felt or the loss he's felt uh since his mother's death. Yeah. Oh no, no, I mean I'm not that's not contradictory to the reading that I got at all. Uh uh I I got I was just giving an overview of a very uh, bird's eye picture of a summary but yes I, I absolutely agree like the money plays a big role and I absolutely agree that he is starts the relationship with Ryuta uh being relatively controlling and tries to control him with his money I think and I think that's a big reason why the film is called Egoist uh, I wrote I wrote down with big letters who is the egoist what is what is the meaning of the title Yeah the, sorry but the like the nature of the relationships everything's to his benefit, his satisfaction, and it's kind of like later on in the movie, he's sacrificing parts of himself. Well, that's that's what I'm going to ask because that's I'm not I'm not saying I disagree. I'm just not sure quite if it's right that he ever gives control. I maintain that he never gives control. I maintain that that's why I said the ending is somewhat bittersweet. The bitter part is that I don't think he's given control by the end. At best, I think he's realized what his problem is, but I think he keeps control to the end because till the very end, he asks his mother. Uh, Ryuta's, uh, 
try not to give any spoilers here, he asks Ryuta's mother to move in with him. And there's even like this uh, indication. I wasn't clear that he's sort of running out of money. I don't know if you got that. There's a very vague brief shot of him looking at a, a, a like a bank balance with uh, like all red indicating the money that he's sort of like giving away. Yeah, it looks like he's losing, well, he's leaking thousands of dollars. Exactly. And for reasons that are obvious in the movie, why it's uh, why that is happening. And it's, you know, even close to the end, he's sort of like bragging about it. No, maybe bragging is the wrong word, but it's definitely sort of a source of uh, like a lot of pride and a lot of pride, maybe in the biblical negative sense. Uh, uh, mm. uh, yeah, it's uh, like it's making him look good in some exactly way. so i don't know that he gives control and even we are i love the way the director does this and it's very subtle i mean i'm i was shocked that the movie so has so little melodrama because on paper this sounds like it would be the most melodramatic movie ever but it's not it's very very grounded very realistic there are not stereotypes now, of course i forget to mention although I, I think it was implied that the characters are gay right we're talking about a, a relationship between two men yeah like you said there's no melodrama like the scenes where they have to hide their sexuality. It's like a brief shot of hands fumbling as they try to hold each other's hands, but they're in public, so they can't. It's a, a brief peck on the lips, which you feels like it's dangerous because they're out in public. And there's always that temptation to talk more about their relationship, but they have to rein it in. Yeah, absolutely. And as a moment of personal satisfaction, I've seen hundreds of Asian and Japanese romantic movies where the characters don't kiss. I don't know why there's this taboo against kiss kissing in Japan, or maybe in Asia in general. And who knew I had to wait for a gay movie to actually see a romantic character, like a romantic story where the characters actually kiss. So uh, that's, that's I always <laughs> found that ridiculous in, in Japanese cinema. I mean, it's not universal. I'm sure there are movies that I've seen where the characters kiss, but it's so, there's such a taboo against it. I, yeah, I think like that, seeing that physical side of their relationship sort of allows the audience an entry point into it. It's kind of like there's that intense sort of physical attraction that like sometimes you get when you fall in love at first sight and so you just can't stop hugging a person or holding their hands. And uh, then you see like it grows beyond that. There are more emotions like the constancy and companionship uh, and uh, like doting on each other. And uh, yeah, it's and uh, yeah, just to go back to the point of like whether he loses control or not, I think he has to cede control to Ryuta's mother because he's kind of like looking for the definition of love and Ryuta's mother's like, it's not that simple. It's something people feel. Well, I, I would say what happens, well, sort of, yeah. I would, in, from my point of view, it's not control is yanked out of him. It, it is just taken away from him by both events. The first event that happens and then the second big event that happens. I've tried to, it's impossible to discuss this movie in any meaningful way without spoilers. But that's, it is, it is, at first it feels like a little abrupt, like the things that happen in the movie, but it completely makes sense in the, in the, in the, uh, considering the themes of the movie. And I think it is control is yanked out of him. And I don't know, maybe he has learned by the end that he's willing to let it go. I'm not so sure about that, but it's definitely, he, I don't think there's any point of the movie that he decides to give up control voluntarily. And there's even this, like, moments with Ryuta where, there, there are scenes that on the face, in face value, they're very chick flicky scenes, for lack of a better term, where one romantic lead saves another from a precarious situation. That's sort of on the face of it. But we see, like, especially in the, face, in the facial expressions of uh, Ryuta and in the maybe dissatisfaction that he has towards perhaps the life changes that he made, he, 
it's very subtle. And I think it does show there that uh, uh, Totsuke is, is still controlling him. It still once has this idealized image of what his life should be like, even though, like you said, this may be the first time that he falls in love with someone. But he still has this idealized life, and he wants to control that, and he uses money to control it, and it, it looks like he's saving the character. Maybe he is. I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. But I do think there's sort of like maybe like sinister side, very subtly shown, which I, I, I really appreciated about this movie. Yeah, and like you said, it helps create an ambiguity because you can read into it many different meanings. Yeah, but I think I think I, I guess uh, perhaps I am a little bit more pessimistic and I took the negative meaning. I don't think, like I said, I, I said bittersweet. I don't think it's necessarily he he's doomed to a life of being controlling, but I do think that it is something that he learns the hard way rather than the the something that he makes a decision to do. Yeah, this isn't happy together where one person's banished in Buenos Aires and the other one goes back to his home. Absolutely. This is, so what number was this in your list? This this was number three for me. Oh, number so one lower. Okay. Oh, two lower. Okay. All right. Yeah, I did struggle whether to put it higher on my list because it's like a really, really moving uh, portrayal of uh, a relationship and all the complications that come with it um, in terms of like uh, money and in terms of like the fact that it's a, a gay relationship. And uh, yeah, at its heart, it's all about love. And I think it's really well conveyed by fantastic performance from Ryuhei Suzuki. Yeah. And I read, is it true that the character, the actors themselves are not gay? Or is that, did I read that wrong? Uh, I haven't actually, uh, I'm not sure. I think they're, I, I can't say for certain. I don't think they're gay. Yeah, because that is, again, there's, I don't, I don't think this is spoiling where there is some very explicit... Uh, very graphic sexual scenes, uh, yes. which is quite a commitment from non-gay non-gay actors. I mean, it, you know, I'm sure actors are professionals and they can do anything, but it's still, you know, it still requires some uh, some effort to kind of put yourself into that position. I, like Ryuhei Suzuki's just that phenomenal. Like last year, he was in um, The Last of the Wolves, where he plays a really terrifying um, Zainichi gangster, and uh, who's who just is, who cruel. was who was Ryuhei Suzuki of the two. Oh, Kosuke. Oh, okay. Okay. And uh, yeah, he's just terrifying as a gangster. And here he's he goes through this change where he stops being dandyish and controlling. And like, oh, like you said, he like these situations yank control away from him as he becomes softer and uh, more loving. And yeah, I totally believe the performance. I totally believe the relationship. And I was moved um, to tears uh, and crying at the end because it's just like so many beautiful examples of love like their love is normalized and uh yeah i totally believed it and the one thing that i really wrote like wrote down very early in the in the in my notes is that the two characters so uh, ruhi the two actors who play kosuke and ryuta they have very good chemistry together like that's you know that's the you, that's the one thing that a romantic movie sort of has to get and this movie just kind of gets it you know, like sometimes actors have chemistry, sometimes actors don't have chemistry. There's nothing you can do about that. But the, the two actors that they chose were just just great together. They're very, very natural. Yeah, it, it feels like it captures that intimacy that um, committed lovers seek in each other. Absolutely. Uh, okay, so that was my number five and your number three, Egoist. So, Jason, why don't you tell us what your number four was? So, so whiplash in terms of tone, as I chose... 
Home Sweet Home, a uh, very uh, strange thriller. Uh, this is uh, unfortunately one that I did not see. It's yeah, directed by Takumi Saito, who's a really exciting actor. Like whenever he's on the screen, he just sets it alight. And uh, he's directed films before, like Blank Thirteen. Um, this is his latest, Home Sweet Home, and uh, it's due to be released in Japan in September. So this is a great chance to get the scoop on J- Japanese audiences. Um, and this is based on a novel by Rinko Kamizu. And uh, yeah, it's a great little tightly wound thriller. The story is basically um, a family uh, of four move into a brand new home. It's the home of their dreams because it has central heating and cameras to monitor the children and uh, they can stay warm during the cold uh, winter months in Nagano Prefecture where it's set. So like expect lots of snow. And this family, they find themselves at the center of murders and blackmail and um, kid, their kids being threatened with kidnapping. And uh, on top of looking great, what's so good about the film is that it introduces a wide cast of characters. and um, they're all presenting facades to the world like the real estate agent who tries to sell them the house is quite manipulative we find out that the, the the husband and the family he's not as loyal as you might think um he and he has an older brother who has psychological problems uh due to childhood trauma but there's also the suggestion of the supernatural in what he says and so like as people are dying through the film and as like blackmail tapes are emerging and um, like there's a presence in the house that could be a ghost, it's hard to guess who or what is orchestrating this campaign of terror on this family. And then when it's revealed, it's kind of like a jaw dropping, oh my word moment, why didn't I see it? But uh, yeah, like all the actors are fantastic because they really commit to the parts um, and that helps build the suspense up from domestic bliss to terror like the the stakes are constantly being raised and there's a sense of threat especially because children are involved and um it did remind me of insidious at times like the way the framing of the house is uh used and um, the way the cct cameras and uh like the involvement of children is used and, i don't think uh, i've seen that either actually insidious oh the insidious films the first two are great Conjuring 1 and 2 are great as well. Oh, The Conjuring. I've seen that one. The first, The Conjuring. If you've seen The Conjuring, you get the general gist. Like, it's like jump scare movies. Yeah, and, jump scare yeah. movies. I've never been a fan. Even even the ones that are so-called labeled good movies. I just, jump scares immediately just turn me off. Personally, because I actually get scared easily. So that's they're just <laughs> uh, obviously a personal, uh, a personal weakness. But it's also just, I find them... Even in the best case scenarios, I find them they're just overused and it's just give me something else already. Okay, so uh, yeah, definitely. Um, like the latest Insidious seems to run on similar things. That's just been released in cinemas. Uh, like but, I yeah, prefer, this story... so, 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 <laughs> because you know, we can always can never uh, uh, resist a digression, but I, w- I prefer the. Uh, why am I blanking? Uh, 99 Takeshimike. Uh, audition. Uh, audition. So I prefer that style of horror, where it's actually legitimately scary, not not relying on jump scares. Just like that's the kind of horror that I prefer, where it is something scary happens but doesn't rely on jump scares. I, I find Punishment Park and Green Room terrifying, whereas like horror films, I'm I've built up a resistance to them. I'm inured to the scares. Okay. All right. So you can continue with your description. Yeah. So like the 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 story is a winner. And uh, all the performers are really great because they inhabit characters and they're able to like 
give nuanced performances that change the tone of a scene. Like a line delivery will be a bit menacing or the body language will have some hostility to it if you're watching carefully. And that constantly makes us question the behavior of all of the characters and it keeps the suspense of the story going. And Takumi Saito proves to be a really good director. Um, and it's Is he also like, in the film or is it just uh, directing? It, I don't think he's in the film. Okay. Um, uh, but he's like, his background as an actor probably helped um, get those performances out. And yeah, he just knows how to use the camera and actors blocking to further create suspicions like close-ups on a glowering face or holding on someone in the scene just a bit longer than necessary to make us suspicious of like motives. And yeah, I ended up really liking this one on the edge of my seat, like shouting with a good horror movie like Black Christmas, get out of the house. <laughs> And uh, I think, like, if I were in New York Asian Film Festival, I would actually really enjoy this experience on a big screen because it also looks good, as well as having that suspense. And I can imagine, like, maybe the audience getting involved as well. All right. And unfortunately, like I said, I can't comment much on it uh, because I haven't seen it. All right. So that was your number four. My number four was Mountain Woman, which we already talked about. Uh, then it could go to number three. And number three for you was Egoist, right? So we already talked yes. about that. Uh, so we can jump into my number three, which is the aforementioned Kazaki movie Mountain Onion. So going from uh, Mountain Woman to Mountain Onion for me. Uh, and just to give a brief summary, this is a film about uh, take place in it, perhaps what is the most, the dullest village uh, in Eastern Kazakhstan, uh, where we mostly follow Jabai and Aniya, a brother and sister team whose family is sort of falling apart. Their mom wants to leave their dad because their dad is obsessed with building a hut to preserve, to save the environment or something like that. Uh, at the prospects of uh, their parents' divorce and their ma mother's infidelity, which happens fairly early in the movie, um, uh, the brother and sister travel to the distant land of China to obtain the magical elixir known as Viagra. Uh, in order to help save their uh, parents' marriage. And this is a very sort of delightfully spirited movie. Uh, that's sort of like the best I could take. It has like the, 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 the style of a cute fairy tale, even though we, we, even though we deal with some very dark, well, not necessarily dark, but, you know, serious topics. And it has this kind of like almost this feel of uh, an Iliad or an Odyssey, where the, 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 the kids travel into this mysterious land, which is... You know, I'm assuming it takes place in eastern Kazakhstan and sort of like it's a border with China. I don't think the name of the village is ever specified. I'm not sure, but it, it has to be taken so close to China because it's really quick to get to China when they are. Uh, and sort of like they have to go to this mysterious land and they meet all sorts of like strange characters and strange, not necessarily in an offensive way, uh, but it's sort of like very unfamiliar to what the kids are used to. And they go through all sorts of trouble to obtain Viagra because they falsely believe it restores manhood. Because that's sort of like the metaphor that someone else used to describe uh, what Viagra does in not so many uh, explicit words. And that's what they think the problem with their dad is. They think their dad's manhood is at, uh, at risk because the dad could not punch uh, a... Um, one of those toy uh, punching bags that you punch in like an arcade and it shows a, a score about how hard you punch. Uh, and their father could, could not punch very hard, so they think he's lost his manhood and they are sort of on a quest to get his manhood back. I don't know if you had a chance to see this one. 
I, yeah, when you recommended it to me, I was like, kids trying to save their parents' marriage. I was like, oh my gosh, this could be dark. But it was actually really fun and delightful. It is, yes. And the, the la- I'm, I'm, a, I'm a sucker for a good landscape movie. And this movie is just landscape end to end. It's great. Great looking. Yeah, like the plains, the endless green plains. And then it takes you into Western China, where it's like deserts. And like just really glorious big blocks of color, like green and like wide blue skies. And then bold use of pinks and uh, uh, for buildings, just really visually dazzling. And again, if you're if you have the chance to see this in a cinema, it's a, it would be a lot of fun. I think I I absolutely agree. Yeah, like that's that's the one movie out of well, maybe there are others, but this one sort of struck out to me as the movie that needs to be seen on a big screen because it just utilizes the uh, the the setting so so well, and it has to be one of the remotest villages because they don't even have good cell phone reception, right? I, I didn't even know there was a village. It was just like a random houses and a gas station. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's pro- maybe common in that area because everybody has sort of like a farm. So they're just, uh, yeah. you know, or land. And, and oh, and it should be said that the film is called Mountain Onions because that's something sort of like the kids do in the beginning. They, they go to random fields on the mountain and gather onions uh, and they just sell them by the side of the street. And there's there's so many like little funny moments. Like as soon as the brother leaves, the sister just to be get done quicker slashes the price of the onions in half. I, yeah, I love the way that she wanted to be called bro and wanted to hang out with the boys. <laughs> always trying to show her toughness. Yeah, absolutely. And there's just such a play with like terms, you know, like like this the whole thing about the manhood uh, that makes it. I mean, it's a very funny, funny, not in a haha, but it's funny as in a cute, cute in a cute way movie even though it does deal with a relatively serious subject matter. Yeah, this manhood, which is a running theme throughout the film, and it's always subverted. So it's kind of like, your father mustn't cry, he's not much of a man. Your father must be able to punch something. Your father must be good at sex. And these yeah. kids are like trying to facilitate all this, and it ends up being a mad cat journey to get Viagra, which is just very reductionist yeah. and funny in itself. And uh, yeah, there's this great line where these two guys with domestic violence t-shirts um, are cycling through and they stop to buy onions for the kids and they're like, does your father beat your mother? And the, and the boy answers, no, our, our mother beats us all. Yeah, <laughs> Just... yeah, it's more like the other way around. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And there are like numerous moments where it like subvert your expectations and take you in unexpected directions. It's just always delightfully funny in that way. Yeah. And there's almost like this kind of like familiarity with, because there's, you know, like I said, there's a, an infidelity involved, but it doesn't, it doesn't have the reaction that you expect or the, the, the consequences that you expect in the end when sort of everything comes down between the family. The one criticism that I have, again, is the way it resolved, it felt a little bit too convenient. A little bit rushed. Uh, perhaps a slightly forced happy ending, but it didn't bother me as much. Uh, okay, so that was, I'm glad you watched it. So that was my number three, Mountain Onion, for Kazakhstan. I recommend people check this out, either at the festival or, you know, uh, anyone, because it's a, or anywhere else, because it is a fun movie. It is a delightful movie, and it's just, you know, it, it goes by quickly. It's, I think, 90 minutes or something like that. Hmm. I, yeah, I think this, this could appeal to a broad audience. Absolutely. Who are looking for a laugh. All right, so that that was my number three, Jason. Uh, uh, that's we we went fast because we we had a few movies in common. So, what is your number two now? My number two is In Her Room by Chihiro Ito, and uh, I think it's based on a book or an original script of his. I think it's based on a book. 
but I don't think I saw this one. Let me just double check. Yeah, I didn't see this one, unfortunately. Okay, so um, earlier this year I watched Side by Side, which is. Although I, I did, I did want to watch it because I did see that uh, the director was involved, or the screenwriter was involved with crying out of crying out of crying out love in the center of the world, which is sort of like a teen movie, which I, I always enjoyed. Mirai Moriyama, who actually appears in Mountain Woman, he's uh, the main character in that yes, film. Yes, 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 and he was directed uh, by uh, e- Ey. Or uh, not EY, not, not by Shunji EY, but one of his uh, assistant directors who kind of made a career of themselves. Yes, I've written it. Uh, Isao Yukisada. Yes, who was uh, either like a, a, a mentee of Shunji EY or an assistant director, something like that. Uh, I'm making connections, but just show that I, <laughs> that's how I sort of like, uh, you know, that's kind of what I thought when I saw the title on the list of, of the movies. Let me let me just check. I got that name right. Yes, it is him. And yeah, um, so Chihiro Ito started out as like uh, in the art departments and um, of various films, and she met Yuki Sada, and he's backed her projects, um, helped produce them, and um, yeah, uh, in her room, uh, debuted at the Tokyo International Film Festival last year. And um, earlier this year, she also she released her second film, Side by Side, which was the closing film of the Osaka Asian Film Festival. And uh, I actually think these two really go well together because like, they're a real contrast in style. But uh, just to get back to In Her Room, like I really actually came to adore this film. It's really slow and it has, odd, it has an odd tone to it. It's essentially a story of like a dentist who suffers like anxiety and a lack of confidence and a bit of inferiority complex and he hangs out at the apartment of a mysterious woman. Uh, Her apartment number is room 101 and inside this apartment there's like jungle foliage, there's the sounds of um, jungle birds and uh, like insects and like there's also like a a pretty much an aquarium there so you get the sounds of water and this it's this really like dream space almost where the two uh like bear their souls at first it's kind of like just talking about memories but soon it becomes physical and it's kind of like you find out that uh this woman uh has a sort of clientele of people who visit her in order to sort of like ease the pain in their lives and um the dentist uh susumi he's no different um he becomes quite possessive when the two become physical and so he's trying to deal with uh, like anger management problems because he's jealous of all the other people he has to compete with and uh yeah there's a moment where the two uh go on a sort of a a date or like a, a day out to see a play and uh there's a third character with them and you know like the, a bit of the subtext such as like the roiling emotions that the dentist has to deal with comes out because the play is all about how someone sacrifices themselves uh how a, a giraffe sacrifices themselves this is going deep now uh for humans and uh, nobody's grateful and he feels the same way about it and um you can see that he's really angry about his situation because everybody in his life sort of ignores him or run literally at one point he gets run over by a car like nobody nobody in a car takes any notice of him they just run over his leg and you can see in his workplace like the dental nurses they're not interested in what he's doing and uh his boss who just drags him around from conference to conference he's not interested at all it doesn't include him in any parties or anything and like over the course of like two hours um you get this sort of deadpan comedy kind of like uh, uh susume 
being trampled over by various people, becoming angry, and then as he deals with his emotions, as he gets to know more about the woman in Room 101, he becomes much more confident about himself, and he decides to make a change in his life. But the like the whole execution, like the editing is slow, and it can be odd at moments. The camera movement is slow and deliberate, but it can also be odd at moments. There's a bit brief use of CG for like the monster of anger and jealousy. Uh, like like the whole thing comes off as dreamy, and the colors are very vivid, and the visual compositions are very bold. So I found myself becoming really absorbed. Yeah, the screenshot looked very nice. Yeah, like just use of like empty space and having the characters there. And if you can see like maybe the costumes make them blend in or stand out, and you're just constantly thinking and you're just enjoying the visual compositions. And the yeah, the the the, the performers are really great as well because they're delivering. The material very precisely. You've got like the confident characters living their lives, but you've got the ones who are wrapped up with this woman. They like mumbling their lines. They you can see they're constantly tamping down negative emotions. So I, yeah, I just became really, really transfixed by what I was seeing on the screen. And again, this is another film. If I could see it on a big screen, I think it would look great. And uh, so yeah, if you're looking for something different. Uh, a really absorbing offbeat story i think um in her room is film for you it's not a funny throughout the film it's not like aki kurismaki sort of dead pan comedy throughout there's uh seriousness to it uh there's some tension it's not a thriller or anything it's just like a like a offbeat character study all right all right that sounds good uh okay so that was your number two uh in her room my number two is uh, the film from Hong Kong, Vital Signs. Oh, okay. Exciting. Yes. And this is a film that I did not thought, I just, I, you know, of course, we knew about this film. We've talked about it many, many times. And I thought this was just a popcorn Hong Kong film, uh, you know, almost like an action film, although from the subject matter, it's not really an action film. But when I saw it, I was surprised at how really great it is and how politically poignant it is. So just to give a Brief summary, it is about, uh, it stars Louis Ku, of course, who's, uh, he's the one getting an award, right? Is yes. One of the ones that get an award. Okay. Who plays an EMT, an emergency medical technician, or as they call them in the movie, ambulancier. I don't think that's a proper term in English, but maybe in Hong Kong it is. Or I don't know if it is, maybe not. Uh, but like, essentially it is about this sort of like team of ambulanciers and he's, he's one of them and he's very good. He's very passionate about what he does, uh, saving lives, but uh, he want, his one weakness is that he doesn't really partake in the necessary politicking that is required to advance uh, in his career. And this is sort of like a big deal and a big theme of the movie. And it's just, and by the end, he sort of like learns to be a little bit more flexible, learns to be a little bit more accommodating, but it still like never quite gives into the sort of like the hypocrisy that is, well, I think what the film is criticizing is Hong Kong bureaucracy. Uh, but all this, so it's a, it's a really personal story. It's about this uh, this character who sort of has a relatively tragic past and 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 a very much uncertain future. But all this takes place in sort of like in a in a Hong Kong backdrop that is in very rapid decline. And and I think that's that's really the strength of of the movie, in my opinion. I mean, the the story of Louis Ku characters is great, but it's nothing unique. But the sort of like the way that that's juxtaposed to sort of like the decline of Hong Kong. They make it a big deal about how so like many great people have left Hong Kong and even his own family is no longer lives in Hong Kong. And I think part of them are in Toronto and part of them are in Australia or something like that. And he even throughout the movie, he tries to get his document together. He gets the documents together to leave himself. And that's, that's sort of like a big source of uh, of dilemma in the movie because he doesn't want to leave. 
but to recognize that, that sort of Hong Kong is finished. Uh, and it, it would be the best thing for his daughter. And at some point he even uh, contemplates if he, could, if he could just send his daughter away, even if he cannot get his papers together uh, uh, to, leave, to leave. And so there's like, like a lot of tension generally for that. And it is heartbreaking in the end, sort of like the film, like even though he does not leave, I don't, I don't remember if it's decided that he, plans, he still plans to leave or not. I don't remember exactly the detail. But this, there is this quiet resignation in the film that Hong Kong is indeed finished. Like it doesn't, like a lot of films that we've seen recently that sort of like try to end on a positive note. Um, this film just kind of is very resigned. It says, yes, Hong Kong is not what it used to be. And it's, I'm surprised at how it's, it's not very like controversial in what it says. It never says anything explicit, but it's still like, like almost anti-Chinese in a sense, even though it doesn't look so at the surface. I'm surprised this film got made and became as popular as it is because it does take a very negative view for Hong Kong and it doesn't explicitly say, oh, China did this to us, nothing like that. But it's, I think it's sort of like out there for anybody who can put two and two together. Uh, and at the same time, there's also this other subplot, which not a, not so much a subplot, it's part of the main story about this other ambulancier, a younger, much younger man, who's sort of like the polar opposite of of a Ku's character, and I think his name is Wang. Uh, and he's young, but he's very ambitious, and he's, he's uh, much more proficient in the various, like, politicking, politicking moves to advance. And his goal is to be promoted as quickly as possible to rise to the lad and sort of like become in charge in the sort of like the organization that that deals with ambulance and stuff, I forget what the de- department or whatever it is. But so there's this contrast um, between him and Louis Crew characters. And by the end of the movie, they sort of both kind of sort of meet in the middle and they both learn from each other. Yeah, like with this new ambulance guy, the boss in the fire station is constantly like, just play the game, stick with me, and I'll make sure you rise up through the ranks. Yeah, I mean, there's so many layers to the movie. There's also, like, I didn't mention it, but there's this the, the deal with this guy and his family and the pressure that he has that is, again, I think very poignant and representative of the pressure that a lot of young people feel in Hong Kong. Yeah, absolutely. Like, competition just to actually do well, just to actually live a life. But, it, it, like, the whole uh, thing about people living, uh, leaving Hong Kong, like, this is a big thing in movies running up to 1997 handover, and then it kind of, like, died down. And you start to see it in the sort of more independent movies that are being released in Hong Kong now. At least, uh, I, you know, The Narrow Road is one of those films where there's constant talk of people leaving Hong Kong for Canada or for a better life overseas. And it forms, like, it's surprisingly, it forms a major part of this film's constant running plotline where, like you say, he's trying to get the papers together and um, trying to do what's best for his daughter. And uh, Were you as surprised at how pessimistic is about Hong Kong? I was, yeah. It's, um, okay, so I'm not alone. I wasn't sure if that was just me, because I thought it was very daring uh, and it's negative. It's realistic, because people are leaving Hong Kong in droves. But again, it's pessimistic. And you assume with like the censors in Hong Kong right now that they would be uh, against perhaps uh, releasing movies like this. So why do you think it just kind of made it through? Do you think it's just subtle enough? Because I didn't, I didn't think it was subtle, <laughs> but maybe maybe just uh, just enough to make it through? Perhaps. Perhaps the censors don't want to be seen as overzealous. Um, uh, or do you think Louis Koo is big enough of an, a big enough name that they just couldn't do it or something like that? I, I don't know. But at the heart of this movie is like a tribute to sort of like the ambulance men and women 
who are like the emergency services and so like audiences will be perhaps they're hoping audiences will take that away more than anything else but that's the thing though like i yes so that is that is a big part of the movie i don't think it's the main part i think that is that is there as a, as to show the contrast that no matter how much hard work these people do they're, they're dedicated sort of, it's how dedicated they they are they're sort of like they're digging themselves a hole towards nowhere basically it's just it's just they're they're trying to save a city that's already dead i think I, that's kind of what i took out of the movie uh, and maybe maybe there are some hints of optimism towards the end where he finally accepts again i, I don't think there's much of a spoiler but he has a sort of a back problem and he accepts to get help for it and maybe there is a hint of optimism there but you also uh, have like the younger characters like the nurse and new ambulance man yet so another kind of like- yet another example of romantic leads that don't kiss yeah, yeah well, again, it's like to contrast Louis Coup's sort of cynicism and like his dedication to his work. And like, but he's not the only one cynical. Wang is cynical too, just in a different way. But then he, but then he sees the true value of the work he's doing because Louis Coup's character's sort of his influence is rubbed off on him. Uh, so yeah, so very good film. I think very poignant. And it's just very. I think it definitely, if you want to sort of uh, look at some art or like a work of art that sort of like tries to encompass very well. Sort of like the state of Hong Kong, and maybe maybe not necessarily the state of Hong Kong because I don't know the state of Hong Kong to be honest. I I don't live there. I haven't been there. But at least perhaps a feeling, the feeling that a lot of people have about Hong Kong, and I think this film does that successfully. Yeah, I've never been to Hong Kong, so I'm kind of wary of like Western media organizations and what they portray, and like maybe reading too much into movies. The entire population was in protest. I think that's a safe bet. <laughs> that, oh, that... Yeah, I've seen documentaries like Behind the Red Wall, where the cops laid siege to a, like the university students. Um, but yeah, like that's a really harrowing documentary, Behind the exactly. Red Wall. So it's not. So again, I mean, sure, the Western media is as as an agenda, but it's not. Uh, we. Are, there's a few bad things happening. We can at least assume that much. Yeah, there was a great article on The Guardian about how nobody wants to join the Hong Kong police force anymore because just like everybody, like, well, many normal people like view the Hong Kong police as villains, essentially. Yeah. Which is a massive contrast to like, it was a much more mixed picture <laughs> in the 80s and 90s where there were some villainous police, but there were also heroes like Jackie Chan's police story. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, all right, all right. So that uh, very glad we agree. It was a very good movie. So that was my number two, uh, Vital Signs. So Jason, what is your number one? Okay, so my number one was Okiku and the World by Junji Sakamoto. I uh, I did not see this one, unfortunately. Uh, I've been hyping this one up or hyping myself. <laughs> I don't think you mentioned it if you because I mentioned Mountain Onion because I wanted you to see it, but you didn't. Oh, you did mention you did mention it, but you didn't tell me to watch it. That's the thing. That's what I'm I'm complaining about. Okay, me. I was just hyping myself up, uh, uh, and like people on my blog as well. Because I uh, yeah. saw it at the. Um... I think okay. So so uh, so just a so I I I I watch the last movie that I watched was Egoist, and I'm glad I watched it. But it was like last night. I said, okay, I have time to watch one more movie before the recording. <laughs> yeah. So it was it was actually between, and I I wanted to watch one more Japanese movie because I felt like I didn't I hadn't watched enough. So I said, okay, so what are what are two short, relatively short movies? And I like both this one and Egoist were relatively short, like 90, 90 some minutes. And I made, I chose Egoist instead. So it could have been this one had I made that choice, but I watched Egoist instead. 
maybe in another timeline. <laughs> but maybe maybe I'll I'll watch it. Maybe I'll I will uh try to make time after after we record this episode. Yep, this is there's still time to watch it. And I think this is one that's definitely worth watching. It's an original film, I believe, penned and directed by Junji Sakamoto. So um I don't think he's too famous in the West. Um like major films that he's made are um Face and uh oh uh we've talked about it danshi or the, the complex about the old couple who've lost their son and it's like a alien bit at the end yeah so the the only uh so face uh the only thing i know about that movie is that it it won the award over battle royale that's that's how i know that movie it was nominated the same year as battle royale for it, the awards of the japanese academy Ooh, i face is a very good film and uh comedy really grim in parts uh, but you so yeah it's junji sakamoto uh like he's won awards in japan but i don't think he's too big in the west uh this one i absolutely adored this film it's um a romance set in late 18th century japan where the daughter of a fallen samurai named uh she her name's okiku and um she teaches writing uh and reading and writing to local kids and uh she's uh got an admirer uh and she also has feelings for her admirer his name's chuji and he's a semi-illiterate manure man so he's a guy that collects poop from various outhouses in edo or uh, tokyo as we now call it and um he sells it to farms in the local area and like between them is like a class barrier because they're from different castes and later in the film there's like a, a disability thrown in and uh, they try to realize their love and like the backdrop of this is like um japanese society is about to change because like like samurai era is coming to an end and it, yeah you're seeing the relationship between the two sort of blossom uh during this time of change and um it's shot in beautiful black and white and i think yeah i'm looking at the was, screenshot and it looks re looks really great yeah you've got like really atmospheric um city scenes and uh, interiors and i think these come from like toei uzumasa egamura um like the big uh park in kyoto where they film uh uh like uh, period dramas and tourists can go and watch them um and uh also like great outdoor scenes as well so you're seeing like uh how various parts of the world are connected and the like a whole different stratas of society from the samurai down to the lowly manure men and everybody going about their daily lives so it felt like a real like being taken back in time to uh, experiencing a real slice of history and um it's a very vivid recreation of uh the past and um yeah getting to understand that caste system and seeing that as like the obstacle that the characters have to overcome if they're going to express their love for each other and again, like Egoist, it's another film where love is considered in all of its different forms and how the characters are interlinked. And uh, like the expression of it throughout the film. Uh, it's just beautiful. It's just lines where um, just uh, <laughs> I said, making me emotional. But the kind of like characters giving advice and just make me sort of like yeah, just emotional throughout the film. And then there's this climactic moment where the two characters try to express it through words and food and gestures. Just, it had me in tears. And uh, yeah, it's, it's one of those films that's really, really beautiful, really moving, like genuine human emotions on the screen. 
uh, especially thanks to the performances of everyone in the cast. Really impressive. Uh, Haru Kuroki as um, Okiko, as she goes from like a, the, a fearsome woman, the daughter of a samurai with all the pride, uh, to a kind of gentler, more openly loving person. And like there's comedy involved as well because the characters are like clashing with each other. And there's also like the understanding that like, yeah, this world has harshness, but you have to laugh through it. And um, I think this is a film where I grew to enjoy the company of everyone involved. And I felt like they all had lives that would continue off the screen as well. So very rich characterization. And um, it's a, such a simple story of love told with such delicacy that gains of profundity, the way it explores love and um, dedication to another person. And um, yeah, like, like, any good film it makes made me think of like the people in my life and like my partner just like there are lines in this film that i tried using on her and um yeah it's just absolutely if you want a really moving emotional experience beautiful historical drama one that resonates today because these emotions are universal at okiko in the world this this could possibly be my number one film of the year all right all right well we'll be looking forward to the our uh, usual best of the year episode in a few months from now to see if if uh, anything else has sort of like s- supplanted it by by that time. Yeah, you'll you'll come back and tell me it's terrible. <laughs> oh, oh no, I mean, I, 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 based on the description, based on the directors, based on your summary, based on the screenshot, I I know I will like it. I don't know that I will like it enough to have put it in my top five. I don't know about that. There was too many good movies in this festival, but. I am I have a pretty good feeling that I would enjoy this movie uh, when I finally get around to watching it. Well, I hope you do watch it and you do enjoy it. And I hope listeners do watch it and enjoy it too. All right. Sounds good. So that was your number one, your favorite movie of the festival of the ones you've seen. So my number one is also like a bit of a, just like number two, a bit of a pop pick. And that is A Bad Education from Taiwan. Directed ah, by okay. Tai Ko. And this is another one that I thought was overhyped that I, I didn't necessarily expect to like it. But when I watched it, I'm not exaggerating. I was literally at the edge of the seat for 70 minutes, at the edge of my seat for 70 minutes. Uh, that's how well this movie is made. The story is nothing original. It's a fairly like usual story, but just the way it is sort of textbook great directing. And Tai Ko is sort of like, taken a relatively simple but still good story, still poignant story, still story with a lot of themes and a lot of underlying subsects that you can sort of extract from the movie. But it's kind of like just made it filled with tension. There's not like one frame of this film that is not full of tension. And like I said, I was it's, it's a short film. It's about 75 minutes or something like that. And I was at the edge of my seat for that, for that entire runtime. And just to give a summary, it takes place. Uh, it it takes place with the three. It's it's a movie about three friends, Wang, Hang, and Chang, who, who after their high school graduation, they go drinking. Uh, two of them decide to cement their friendship by telling each other their darkest secrets. One of them uh, tells of a murder he committed, and the other one tells of a rape he committed. Uh, however, when it comes to uh, I believe Wang's turn, he has he can't think of anything that bad. Uh, that he might have done to share. Uh, so in order to restore the balance in their friendship, the other two sort of force him to commit an act of violence right then and there. Uh, so he decides to do so against a gangster. I'm not sure if he knew that it was a gangster. Uh, and once that happens, essentially everything falls apart and what follows is an adrenaline-fueled 
uh, fever dream, essentially, where there's like one scene after another, them trying to escape the gangster and then trying to survive from the gangsters. And it's just so much about it. Like I said, again, edge of seat. That's that's the perfect phrase to summarize it. And there's so much that comes out in this sort of like adrenaline field movie about class, about the economy, about friendship, about sort of like what life is like and what is expected for young people in Taiwan, perhaps. It is like one of those, it, the setup is like one of those Hollywood madcap comedies where craziness happens in one night. Or maybe like um, The Hangover, maybe. But like the sort of dramatic states, stakes are pushed to the extremes because of what the boys go through once they're separated and they get involved with like sex workers and cops and gangsters and you're never quite sure if they're going to make it out with all their limbs intact essentially because it's just like some of this stuff is so extreme. Uh, yes, absolutely. And there's like, uh, and another thing, the structure, I mean, this could, the film is very cinematic, but from a, on paper, it could have been a play because it, it has two massive set pieces. One of them takes on the roof in the beginning when they tell each other stories. And it is primarily driven by dialogue. Even if the director doesn't just let them talk, the camera movement and the flashbacks makes it such that it is a very cinematic film. Uh, but at the same time, later on, the, like, the second major scene at the restaurant. Again, that could be a play on paper, but once you look at the movie, just it could not, could not be a play because of how, how the director chooses to tell that particular story, even though the story itself could be a play or could be theatrical for... Uh, in other words, uh, yeah, the film slowed down tremendously at that point. Did you find yourself like uh, enjoying it as much, getting the tension out of it? Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. The the last part, I found it even more tension than the first part, just because of uh, you know I'd never expected to. I never well, I I sort of because of how story structure and because of how many movies I see, I sort of maybe could sort of predict what would happen, but it's I was still very much invested in the fate of the of the three children. Uh, by uh, throughout the entire time, especially in that le second half where they where it takes place at the restaurant, I'm trying not to spoil anything. But no, I didn't. I did not. It slowed. It slowed down in terms of action. There's a, like a little bit of action in the middle, but the dramatic action never stopped, in my opinion. And as you said, like really great direction. It focuses our attention on the right things at the right time to stoke up that tension. Yeah, absolutely. And I think justly Kaiko has won awards for this movie. I think he won the promising newcomer at the Osaka Film Festival. Uh, I think so. Yeah, I think so. And he won similar awards at the Asian Film Awards and at the Golden Horse Film Awards. I don't think the film won anything else other than promising newcomer for... Oh, I think one of the actors may have won something too. Yeah, his background is of an actor. Yes, Skyco, but he doesn't act one of the movies. But I say one of the actors, one of the three students, he also won, I think, Best Supporting Actor at the Golden Horse Award. Ah, okay. Uh, yeah. The middle one, the one who is sort of like, sort of appears to be in charge of the of the three friends. He won a Best Supporting Actor award. Yeah. This is one of the earliest movies that I watched almost two weeks ago, and it's still very vivid in my head. So I suspect this is a film that has a good chance of making it to my top 10. You never know how I'll feel, you know, in a month, two months, three months, etc. But it's, it just left me mesmerized and it is primarily for how excellent like a first this first time director was able to pull to pull it off like i said the story i thought it was good i thought there's a lot of subtext in the in the relationship between the children between the students 
but I, it's not, I don't think it's anything that we haven't seen before, but it's just how the director chooses to tell the story and how well he sort of like does what it might be just textbook directing, but he does it so well that I think deserves a lot of praise. Yeah, it's not an ounce of fat on this film. It's Absolutely. just action. Absolutely. Not an ounce of fat. And the 75-minute trimmed uh, runtime definitely shows that. I'm very glad that a movie like this was made in Japan because, oh no, in Asia. <laughs> not Japan, Taiwan. Although it, it does have a very Japanese vibe to it, don't you think? Uh, uh, especially uh, the way the gangsters are portrayed. Yeah I, um, yeah, I suppose, yeah, the gangsters are portrayed compared to other Taiwanese gangster films, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Uh, but uh, but I, I'm glad that this, because like, there is a tradition in Asia, mostly Japan, but also other parts of Asia, where 70-minute feature films are acceptable uh, yeah. and are not uncommon, whereas in the West this would have been forced to be 90 minutes. And I, I, I don't know if that would have ruined it. Maybe not. But I'm glad that the director had the freedom to just give it the length that he thought was best for the movie. And that works tremendously well for this movie. Agreed. All right. Uh, so that was my number one. And I believe we're done with our top five. So Jason, why don't we go over just our top fives listing just to remind the, view, the, the listeners of what they were. So why don't you just go from number five to one? What were your choices? So my number five was Mountain Woman. Number four was Home Sweet Home. Number three was Egoist. Number two, In Her Room. And number one, Okiku and the World. All right. So my number five was Egoist. My number four was Mountain Woman. My number three was Mountain Onion. My number two was Vital Signs. And my number one was Badge Education. So that is our top five of the festival. Uh, I think all, both mine and yours, I think we both agree they were excellent movies. Of course, preferences vary. And, you know, like I said, in a different day, I might have picked a different top five because uh, there were many great titles in the, in the selection. Uh, but one, don't we go over some of our honorable mentions, films that didn't make it into the top five, but were, you know, great enough that you at least think they deserve like a quick mention at the, uh, like it's at the closing of our episode. So uh, the opening film, Killing Romance, uh, is one of my honorable mentions. Uh, can you remember the rich guy, uh, the patriarch of the rich family in um, uh, Parasite? Yes. That actor, um, imagine he takes that character and he makes him even more obnoxious, controlling, and uh, malevolent. And uh, you've got him as like the main antagonist in Killing Romance. Now, this is a very, very theatrical film, uh, like a song and dance sequences, big ball use of colors, like absurdist humor that ratchets up to include CG animals. And it's all about a pop star who marries a real estate developer slash um, uh, animal rights activist slash um, environmental activist. Real estate developers don't often do uh, good charitable work. And it turns out to be the case that this guy is too good to be true. He's very controlling and um, tortures his wife mentally and physically. Uh, but this all delivered in a very comedic way. Lots of K-pop numbers because the two characters use singing to try and um, control each other. Like the the uh, the villain will try and remind the lady that like he loves her so much, and she she's a former pop star who tried to be an actress, and she's got this pop song called "I'm a Bad Girl," which is very very catchy. After watching the film for a few days after I was singing the song "I'm a Bad Girl," um, and uh, yeah, it's just a lot of fun as you see these characters clash, and um, it's all about like essentially people finding the strength within themselves 
to sort of uh, overcome a capitalist overlord. <laughs> so there's a bit of that running through the film as well. Um, yeah, it's a lot of fun. And um, again, this is a film that should be seen on a big screen because it's just very visually vivid. Uh, there's another Korean film called Hail to Hell. I'm not sure if you've seen that one. I saw it. Yeah, so it, it, I, I, I guess I, I didn't put it in my honorable mentions, but it could. I, it could have put it there. It's just there was a few things about it that bothered me, but so unique and so, um, so original. I felt actually screw that. It, it's, it's in my honorable mentions because it, I, I liked it a lot, even though I felt that the story made no sense at some point. Sometimes I, I, I felt like the setup was fantastic because it had this off-kilter atmosphere. Like you've got these two, yeah, it's like two high school girls, grim suicide death ideation due to severe bullying, and they decide to get revenge on the bully, and um, they go to Seoul. And uh, one of them's got a box cutter, and these two girls are really great contrasts uh, against each other because one's very sullen and reserved and intelligent, the other's very mouthy and uh, arrogant, and um, they've got a really good. Ke- the two lead actors have got really good chemistry together, and um, it looks like they're going on a road trip. And the way it's shot, it's so hip and cool and fun. And then they meet their former tormentor, and the film becomes a bit more conventional and predictable and grim dark. As we understand that the bully's stuck in a terrible situation herself, which is, is there's a strong implication that she did it to herself, right? She 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 tried to do it out of personal greed or ambition to get into that place that they hip mention, uh, but then sort of like yeah, paradise, not, uh, yeah, which is a, a specific place I think in the Fiji Islands or something like that. I forget. Yeah. South Pacific, somewhere in the South Pacific. Yeah, there's a, like a very strong implication that the leader is involved in drug trafficking or some some nefarious, and the vagueness of all that rubbed me off the wrong way a little bit. There's something wrong with the cult, but it's never specified exactly what's wrong. There's also, like, I agree with you 100% on everything that you said. The one thing that bothered me, in addition to everything that I said, was when whenever everything falls apart towards the end, we get this hint of a relationship between the tormentor and the one priest or the counselor, right? Which sort of felt that he came out of nowhere. It was like, and eventually when something happens to him, she completely freezes and doesn't want to live anymore. And that also didn't really make any sense. I, don't, I, I totally read that into their relationship. There was something more going on. Did you? Okay. Like Maybe I missed it. When, when I saw it, when I realized it, it felt like out of nowhere, but it's possible that I missed it. I, like I said, I enjoyed this movie a lot. I think yeah, because it like it becomes a bit more conventional. Once you understand the setup of where it's going, you kind of like you can see okay, there's a lot of manipulation going on. And I, I mean, I love a good cult movie. It's, 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 yeah. it's always great. Uh, yeah, and uh, like uh, the ending is um, like there's character growth at the very end, and uh, yeah, like um, uh, those would be my honorable mentions. The other films that I saw, like a tour guide and Bear Man, they're good. Films, like never Bear goes Man, out. I saw that too. I, I was a little bit disappointed in that one. I felt too too weird. Too I don't know. Too many flaws. A lot of elements, plot elements that didn't make sense, in my opinion. It promises the title promises a guy with bear like powers, and it delivers it regularly. For it delivers. The no, no argument there. I, I don't think it's uh, a great film. It's more like a three star film. It's very solid, but the the cast are great. They totally commit to their parts, and um, it's always fun to watch them and the direction is great and uh yeah a tour guide is expecting something a little more gritty um but i appreciated that it, it gave me a lot to think about and to empathize with as you see like lifestyles of north korean defectors in south korea so it's like an issue film 
of his various issues. So it's very interesting to watch. And uh, yeah, uh, Mountain Onion. So honorable, those would be my honorable mentions. All right. Uh, so my honorable mentions is uh, first a Korean short called What We Leave Behind. Ah. Uh, and I all, I was very close to leaving uh, to putting this in my top five, but eventually I decided to go with something else. But uh, what we leave behind is a sort of a, uh, a very unique technique uh, with, I don't think I've seen before, although I'm pretty sure it's been used before, uh, where it's told through stop motion, but done with photographs, uh, with like real life fo- photographs. So there's this sort of like low frame rate effect that the the achieves. And we never actually see the actors it's just the surroundings of the actors and the, the, the sort of like the results of their actions. Like if the family is eating dinner, we'll just see the empty plates, but we never actually see the, uh, the, the actors. And it's, it's a story of this uh, that spans over decades of a family. As they move into the house, they have kids, the kids grow up. Uh, the kid which is one kid. The son grows up. He has a family of his own uh, and then stops calling the dad, <laughs> like typically like that. But it's very, very heartbreaking and... Uh, very, very well done, and it's like 10 minutes or so, and it's very eff- effective in, in the story that it's trying to tell in that short time and in the, in the technique that it does, that it, that it, the visual technique that it utilizes to tell the story. And like everything Korean, the melodrama is excessive. Uh, however, I think that like the, the way they tell the story helps tone that down a little bit, that it makes it acceptable, in my opinion. Excited, excited to watch it and then you said heartbreaking i'm like oh i don't know if i could deal with that <laughs> it's very heartbreaking in the end but it ends in a very positive note so okay uh, so it's it's not a bad ending by any means it's a very optimistic ending and a, a cynical guy like me made me a little sick but it's okay uh, <laughs> so the uh, another other korean short uh that was not that great as a short but it, it had some really great visual effects and some great acting it was all your fault producer and it's essentially oh, yes it's essentially a a a, a, a student film crew. Uh, try they're trying to make a movie and then zombies attack and they essentially have to survive a zombie attack. It's a ten minute movie again. Uh, very short. I don't. I forget the runtime, but it's a very short movie. It's like 16, 17 minutes, something like that. And it's it has like a nice twist ending at the end where again like a bit too cynical even for me. I thought the ending. I, I wish she'd help the other she doesn't by the end but no i love that ending <laughs> she's very put upon for it <laughs> a very fun a very fun film and for for like you know a film with probably a very small budget i felt the effects were fantastic yes great makeup uh yes another another film that uh unfortunately you already told me you didn't like it but i liked it enough to put it in my honorable ventures was the effect of lying okay uh, it's a, a British film that tells the story of an Indian family essentially falling apart. And uh, there are a few things that I didn't like about the movie, but what I really liked is the, reali- the realism and the awkwardness. Like the scene where they're in the next room where the wife is cheating on the husband and the daughter is there too. I thought that was just cinema gold. I thought that was fantastic. Yeah, the cringe moments. I, I, I found it, I had the opposite... Um... Uh, reaction to it, I find it very theatrical. Like characters would have a be, be in the middle of a full blown argument and then stop to take a call so we could get a plot point. Yeah, so so there was the dialogue was very awkward. I so that's true. I took it that as deliberate, but it, it is. I I agree that the dialogue was very awkward at times. I felt yeah. I felt like the the I could see the writers in the writing room just like I think there's only one writer on this, but he's kind of like okay, we're gonna make a parallel between. The daughter and the mother, with the differences in the generations and uh, like the, the traditions. 
I didn't see that. I didn't see that so much. The ending was, I hated the ending. It's just too cleanly wrapped up. Exactly. Exactly. Too cleanly wrapped up. Uh, that's, that's perhaps a point where I could say I saw the writers. Not so much in the dialogue. I felt that was deliberate, but to each his own, I suppose. Yeah, I just, I just found it so theatrical. It's just like convenience and not earthy or relatable in any way. Like Okiku in the world, I felt like I was taken back to 18th century, well, 19th century Japan. Uh, yeah, just like Mountain Woman felt like I was in a real community of real people. And like, I didn't get that with uh, the effects of lying. It just didn't work on me. All right. Uh, and the last Sorry. one. <laughs> that's fine. Uh, and the last honorable mention for me is the movie December. Ooh, yes. If that had been my first time watch at the fest, I would have put this higher. I would have put it in the top five. So but, I believe you did put it in your top five in the Osaka episode. I did, yes. And it's a really good character drama. I think. So there are two parts to the movie. There is a, the family drama, which is the, the relationship of the, 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 the ex-husband and wife, and then sort of like reconnecting and then disconnecting again. And then there's the courtroom drama, which tries to be more like legally, legalese philosophical drama. So the family drama is fantastic works really well i thought the, i thought the courtroom side of the story i thought that was very poorly done and the the actual courtroom proceeding itself i was i was very disappointed because the film starts with promising like a, a complicated to resolve a complicated legal situation of what why was this why was this person tried as an adult when she's a minor and why she should be tried as a minor and then they proceed the entire two-hour movie to never talk about that. It's just very vague platitudes about, is it wrong to kill? Or should you be punished about killing? You cannot, that, I assure you, no court has ever had that. Like, it feels to me like the writers didn't consult a lawyer writing this. They just watched a bunch of, like, like generic legal dramas, and they just wrote the most generic courtroom scenes. So I was very upset by that. It just it felt to me this promises like a re like the film starts by promising a real philosophical debate about should this person be freed and should this person, given the circumstances, should she walk free and does it deserve to walk free? And they did none of that. He just kind of completely forgot it. And the only great and this, and when I say great, I do mean fantastic. Was the other side of the movie where it is the the father and the mother trying to deal with the the the, the pain. That sort of like is rekindled when the Keynes comes back to trial. I had the opposite reaction. I thought like the courtroom drama was like the arguments were presented clear and easy to understand. And then like this is uh, all about the characters learning to find forgiveness uh, with themselves and with others. And like the conflict in the court, like that was really well delivered through the direction and some fantastic acting where just, like all sorts of emotions are spilling out, especially anger. And like, like you said, the personal lives of the characters, what they're going through, like the, the teenage girl in the cell and the, the parents who've lost their daughters, like just really like the anguish and the pain and suffering is really visceral um, at times. And the, the character changes throughout the film, really compelling. And like at the end, you've got this really tense scene. So like, can they 
find forgiveness or not. And it, but that's not part of the courtroom drama, though. I mean, I agree with you that forgiveness is a big part of the movie, but there's nothing to do with the philosophical argument that the film is trying to present. Well, we don't need to go too deep into the philosophical argument because we're trying. We're looking at characters who are like, can we move past this terrible event that scarred our lives? But I think there's enough of the philosophical element there because you've got like the experts saying. I don't know like, because I, mean, I I didn't I didn't believe that those were experts. None none of that convinced me. I'm, just to give a little bit of background, I, I like courtroom dramas, both in literature and film, are somewhat of a passion of mine. I, there, there's courtroom dramas that are completely unrealistic and fully emotional, and there are courtroom dramas that are promised to be somewhat semi-realistic. Uh, and the film, it seems to me the film promises that the courtroom drama is a significant element. The courtroom proceeds a significant element of the film. If the film sort of was set up such that the 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 family part of it, like the 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 mother and the father, was the main part of the courtroom. Was just something like a MacGuffin. That's fine, but I don't think that's how the movie set up. The film is set up, in my opinion, that the philosophical discussion is is central. And that character, the lawyer character, whose name I forget, he makes a big deal out of it, and and the film makes a big deal of that character. So I feel like like the film does actually promise to to dive deeper into the philosophical and 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 legal legal philosophy of the, the that particular case and doesn't it not it's not like it does a little bit it doesn't do at all in my opinion that's why I'm, I'm i'm speaking passionately about this because i was so hyped up when i saw how the film started and then when it when it didn't really go there i was very disappointed maybe it's an expectation issue but i felt like the film made me expect something else other than what it delivered the courtroom stuff and the personal stuff complement each other really well and i i personally felt like there was enough of the courtroom stuff uh, to set everything up and then you've got the character drama happening outside of it and then bursting into the courtroom itself. And again, it's all about the characters coming to the conclusion that at some point we have to either you know, let go of our anger or act on it and you know, what is the benefit to society? And I think the ending uh, answers that. I, I mean, I didn't feel like they come... Like I, and again, I could be wrong about this, it's just my opinion, that had... Had the film been entirely about the family drama and all the courtroom had happened either in a very diminished capacity or entirely off screen, I think that the family drama would have worked just as well. And like, I don't think like a lot of the courtroom drama was necessary to have like the same emotional impact for the family drama side of the film. Again, just my opinion. I, I heartily disagree. Like the, 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 the husband and wife. The different approaches to the courtroom and whether they agree and work together or not, and like like the secrets that spill out because the lawyer has been. But yeah, but the secrets could have spilled out really in, in private meetings, or it could have been in phone calls, or it could have been in other ways. It doesn't. The courtroom proceeded. Like, like the most intense scenes between them happen either at the stairs of the courtroom, outside the courtroom, or in some in a bar, in private bedroom. I think all the meat is the courtroom is just gives information that is very, very unrealistic for a courtroom. It's information that I believe the film could have delivered, again, in my opinion, could have delivered in other ways. I don't know. That scene where the lawyer digs up what the father's been doing with his time since his daughter's death is just really excruciating. And it's something that could only have been done in a courtroom because the father's never going to admit what he's been doing in that time. I, from and a legal no way anybody could find it, out. It has absolutely no bearing on the case. It has absolutely no... That should have no bearing on the case. The other lawyer should have been objected, should have objected, and, and the judge should have thrown out. A lot of the objections were nonsense in the, in the courtroom. 
like they're trying to work on the parents in order to like clear the way so they could be like a, a fair judgment on this girl at the end. But, but the what does that have to do with to anything about the, the, the court, the heart of, that's what I'm struggles me. The heart of the case, the heart why she should have been set free is because she was not judged as a minor. She was judged as, a, as an adult. And the lawyer is making very, this is said like five times in the beginning of the movie, that the, the issue is that she should have been judged as a minor. And none of that matters when the issue is that she should have been judged as a minor, not as an adult. Like, none of that matters to the, like, to that it, particular... It does matter because the parent, like the father especially, is pushing to uphold the sentence and to keep going to trial. And so this is going to be something that's going to dog this girl's life. Yeah, he's life. pushing. He's not giving any reason. And the fact that he could receive money has nothing to do with whether or not she deserves to be judged as an adult. But it undermines, it undermines any like application to the court that but he it, might it have. Should, it, it shouldn't undermine it because his push should have no weight whatsoever. I may want uh, Harvey Weinstein to receive 30 years as opposed to 20 years in prison. Doesn't matter at all. No matter how much I want it, it has absolutely no bearing on the law. Like that's that's but what I'm the, saying. But the, the thrust, the thrust of this film is like the parents, like the lawyer has a method of reducing the sentence, which is you try her as an adult, and the parent, the the father especially, is like we're going to take this to court, and he could keep doing this. So the lawyer has to undermine the father at every point. Right. And that's what I'm saying. The judge the should throw out the testimony of the parent because it has absolutely no bearing on the what the the court, the way the court works is they they make specific decisions, and the decision that they have to make in this court is was she incorrectly judged as a minor or not so that testimony but then the father could influence the judges <laughs> we're having a big argument over an honorable mention but like the like the father could influence the judge well it sh shouldn't that's what i'm saying it shouldn't influence the judge it shouldn't influence the judge and the judge this judge is not making a decision about the case this is an appeal process and and it's it's what it supposed to judge is a decision of a previous court it's not supposed to make a new decision that's how that's how these things work and uh and like anyway I, okay you're right we shouldn't we shouldn't dwell anymore on this but it, it bothered it bothered the hell out of me and had that not bothered me this would have been in my top five as well uh, uh, like without I think, um without regular absolute... listeners will know that sometimes uh we clash over <laughs> minutiae of things absolutely. anyway anyway uh it doesn't matter but I don't have any more honorable mentions. These are the ones. And it still was good enough that I made it, I mentioned it in my honorable mentions. It's just, there were a few, in my opinion, fatal flaws. And as you said, you're a big fan of courtroom dramas, and perhaps you're expecting more. Yeah, That's true. Uh, okay, uh, so I think uh, anything, any closing sentiments about the New York Asian Film Festival before, like, before we move on? So this year's lineup, Again, I've only seen about the tw nearly 20 of the 70-odd films that have been um, selected. And the quality so far has just been fantastic. Um, and I think it's as good as the 2021 edition where we had um, Junkhead and Ninja Girl. Um, it's really like selection ent where there's entertainment, real human emotion, lots to think about, really visually stunning movies. and if anybody's a fan of asian movies and they're in new york uh in the month of july they always check out the new york asian film festival 
2023 edition is fantastic. And, and, and you know, uh, every year the New York Asian Film Festival gives has a great selection of films, but in the four or five years that I've been covering it, both for this podcast and for previously for V-Cinema, I think this is my favorite year in terms of, again, it, there's always a bit of subject, subjectiveness based on the films that I have seen uh, every year, but this, I think this is my favorite year so far. Uh, cool. In terms of in terms of collective quality, maybe there is individual films that I've liked more other years. But in terms of sort of collective quality, I think I've seen more films that I really enjoyed this year than any other year. Yeah, I cannot think of a dud film I've seen this year. So, like everybody, everybody, check out New York Asian Film Festival website. Check out the Heroic Purgatory uh, mini reviews that John's going to oh reviews that John's going to do and uh, some of the lengthy uh, reviews I'm. Uh, going to publish they're like over a thousand words so like get a cup of coffee absolutely <laughs> yeah, so, so, so like like i did with osaka for only again for only for the films that i've seen uh not for all the films uh, whereas i think you do all the films don't you or or just uh, the- yeah, for osaka i write the synopses and then um i kind of review like uh, typically the Japanese films or other highlights. Oh, okay, okay, I see. So, so, but should 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 the audience expect uh, all the Japanese films to be reviewed on your blog this year for the New York Asian Film Festival? I've got something for all but two of the Japanese selections. I've actually covered quite a few of the Korean ones. Yeah, well. so those are full-length reviews, uh, and of course, like with the Osaka Asian Film Festival, on the same site that the podcast will be posted, there will be mini reviews shorter reviews of all the films that i've seen um uh, and there will be the page will be updated as i add more reviews because there are time restrictions and uh, uh embargoes and things like that that need to be we need to make sure that we don't violate any of them Mm-mm-mm. okay uh so i think that's a good place we had a very fruitful discussion of the <laughs> yes of the, indeed of the uh, New York Asian Film Festival. And like we said, I, we both enjoyed each set of films, mine and yours. Uh, so I think that is a good place to end our discussion and perhaps move on to the news, which I don't think we have many. I just found a couple of things just this morning as I was browsing Twitter and other places on the internet. And that is Blu-ray releases of Ringu and Junkhead. And we might have mentioned these before. Uh, not Ringu. That was announced last week or the week before, wasn't it? Yeah, from Arrow. I I was under the impression they'd already released the Blu-ray, but it I might guess it I'm might not. have been just released, but it, might, it could be a new edition or a new rendition or new yeah version. Who knows? Uh, but Arrow is one of those companies that are very trusted and always release very good quality stuff. Lots of extras and great commentary. Absolutely, Terry's yes. But Junkhead, really exciting. This is this looks like the US Blu-ray release, and it's available for August fifteen, and it's available for pre-order on Amazon. And you can just, and I'm pretty sure this is one that I might end up ordering. Yeah, it's already been released in France, and a UK release from um, Anime Limited is uh, due soon in a couple months. So this US release, uh, if you're in America, uh, check out Junkhead. Both John and I rated it highly. All right. Oh yeah, listen to the um, listen to the New York Asian Film Festival uh, episode we did in twenty twenty one. Yes, absolutely. And I think it was we talk both of it. us number one. Oh no, I think my number one was something else. Oh, oh interesting. Okay. Um, uh, trying to think. Oh back. no, I think it was number one for you for uh, like the best of the year, maybe. 
Yes. Anyway. I'm trying to think back now. <laughs> it's fine. A any other news? Uh, nothing that I've seen. All right, that's fine. So after that, so this is brief uh, news items. We can move into the last section of our episode, and that is our cultural consumption. So Jason, in, uh, outside of the New York Asian Film Festival, which I, I'm sure, just like me, took a lot of your time, uh, have you seen or done anything else interesting that you'd like to share with our audience? So uh, I watched um, Hal Hartley's um, Long Island trilogy. So that's the Unbelievable Truth Trust. And, um, oh no, I didn't watch Simple Men. Um, but I, I watched the first two, Unbelievable Truth and Trust. And Hal Hartley's a director I really enjoy. And it's great revisiting those films. I played the video games Aliens Fireteam Elite, which I bought a couple of months ago. I f uh, fired it up. Um, and yeah, I enjoyed it because it gave me the LV426 experience. It's always uh, great to hear the distinctive sounds of the smart gun and the pulse rifle. And to hear Xenomorphs bursting or popping uh, with acid blood spray. On what, what and, device uh, was this? Oh, it's on Steam on PC. On PC, um, okay. But it's also available on Xbox and PlayStation 5. And uh, I fired up JR East Train Simulator, and um, I tried uh, driving a train from, oh, uh, where did I go from? Tokyo Station to Shinagawa, and, um, oh, I was on a Chuo line for a couple of stations as well. Um yeah, like when you go to Japan, when you go to Tokyo, like the trains there are fantastic, and like jingles on the platforms, those are some of my sort of strongest memories as well. Um, I find that playing video games doesn't uh give me much satisfaction. I always feel frustrated, like I should be doing something else with my time, unless it's Tactics Ogre or Final Fantasy Tactics. So, um, yeah, apart from watching New York Asian Film Festival films, uh, which has taken up, uh, which I sort of dedicated a lot of time to, I've um dug out all my Japanese coursework from years past and um, started practicing, well, continued practicing Japanese again. So yeah, that's been my cultural consumption. All right. Uh, so just like you, a lot of time I spent watching films from the Asian, uh, New York Asian Film Festival. I did manage to watch The Days after your recommendation. Ah, what did you think? I, I enjoyed it a lot, as I knew I would. Um, and of course, I, one can help but compare it with Chernobyl, the other Russian, uh, well, the American show about the Russian nuclear disaster or the, the Soviet nuclear disaster. Um, the, one, the only one thing that I would probably dock points to the days was I, I wanted more government incompetence. Uh, I, f I felt like the government came in a pretty good light in the show. Not in the best of lights, but I felt like they were a bit too kind. I wanted to see more as to why the why the safety the safety measures failed. Why why were the studies? This is from real life. I don't think the show mentions it at all. Studies of safety concerns were sort of dismissed by both the the Topco Toepco and the the Japanese government. And uh, like I wanted to delve into that. And it seems to me that this is uh, this was. Uh, much more of a closer to a disaster movie where something that nobody controls happens and then they have to deal with it. And in that sense, it was excellent. Yeah. Uh, but again, I wanted that government incompetence angle to it. That, like the prime minister, in my opinion, comes off perhaps in too good a light compared to his real life <laughs> counterpart. Yeah. I think, I think that was like the first time in years that the LDP weren't in power and like the opposition were in power and then that disaster happened to them. Yeah. Terrible, yeah. terrible disaster. And um, of, yeah, of course, just, yeah. 
Uh, and of but, course, yeah, yeah so, agree, so it's, it's not necessarily uh, the drama. administration's fault. It is the the Japanese government's over decades of ignoring safety standards and measures, and and Topco's, uh, you know, fault is there, etc., uh, uh, etc. Et but again, I, I just wanted because Chernobyl does that really well as to yeah. why this happened. I haven't seen Chernobyl. In addition to dealing with the disaster, in addition to everything that is related to dealing with a disaster. Is Chernobyl closer to like a real-time experience like the days? Or is is, it, is there like a flashback structure to it? How is it? Oh, it's it's real-time, yeah. So it, it happens mostly in real-time. And it follows it follows the sort of experience of multiple people, uh, how they do the disaster, how they deal with the disaster. Uh, and it, it culminates with sort of a courtroom scene where he, uh, well, he explains what happened and why it happened and who's to blame for what happened. Yeah. Okay, so it starts. It starts with sort of like a, a moment in the future, and uh, like his, where he is having a flashback. Remember, but after that, it proceeds mostly in a linear fashion. Uh, okay, so that's that. Then I, I then the rest of my time was primarily occupied by a video game called Chain Echoes, which I believe I mentioned to you on Twitter. Yes, you did. You recommended it. To me. Yes. So and this, <laughs> I spent so much time uh, the, <laughs> of this. It was kind of, I got sucked in basically. Um, and uh, this is a, a long RPG uh, specifically inspired by sort of like the golden age of JRPGs in the 90s. So primarily, like, there's a lot of inspiration from the fa Final Fantasy, fi uh, the Final Fantasy uh, series, particularly the earlier series, and uh, Chrono Trigger, uh, and uh, titles like Terranigma, etc. Oh, you know Terranigma? Yes. It has great story, great gameplay, very addicting. It's like it's it is. Uh, there's many RPGs that have come out recently. They claim they capture the old school spirit, but I felt like this one does the best job. I did feel like I was playing an old RPG, but except with some quality of life improvements in sort of like the the menu and the the way the game works, etc. One particular thing that I loved is you, you your health refills after every battle. Okay. You don't have to, to like sort of like manage after battle and like keep potioning yourself. If you survive the battle, then the next battle you start with full health. Or go menu surfing to get magic to re exactly, refill exactly. the health bars. So yeah. it, it's a great game, Chained Echoes. I absolutely uh, strong. It's it's amazing when you find out that it was primarily created by one person. One person, blimey. One person over seven years. Yes, uh, of course. Towards the end, he hired a composer to write the music and, and a couple of other people to help, but the majority of the game was created by one person. And it's if you actually look at the game, it does not look like a game that was created by one person. So I'll definitely check this out. Steam sale is still on. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and that's that's it. I After this, I was inspired and I kind of fired up Chrono Trigger again. I've just started with that, but I might, I've never finished Chrono Trigger. I've started it a couple times. Oh, wow. You're in for a treat. Uh, I know. I mean, I, I know it's a good game. It's just... I. Always circumstances sort of led me to not being able to finish it. Uh, but that is it for, uh, my, for my cultural consumption. Uh, and I, I think that is it for the episode. Uh, any closing thoughts, Jason, before we end the episode? Yeah, I'd just like to like, thank the organizers, organizers of New York Asian Film Festival for giving us this opportunity. Uh, thank the filmmakers, if any of them are listening, um, for, uh, you know, for making these high quality um titles and uh yeah thank you john for the great conversation and to the listeners if you're still 
there with us. Thank you very much. Um, let us know what you think if you go to the festival or if you've seen any of these films. And uh, yeah, I hope you get the chance to see them and you enjoy. Thank you all very much. All right. Thank you, Jason. Uh, as well, on my behalf, thank you on my behalf too. Uh, and as always, if you have any c- c- comments, concerns, questions, suggestions, please let us know at heroic-purgatory.com. Uh, uh, or you can reach us on Twitter at heroicpurgatory, all in one word. Otherwise, we will see you next time.